All right, good morning, Gateway family. How we doing? Everybody good? The Labor Day crowd. Woo! Those who don't have the money to go out of town, is that what it is? I'm just kidding. That's me. No, we'd love to be here this weekend. So glad you're here. want to welcome everybody watching us online. And for those of you visiting us with us, whether it's the first time or few weeks or months. We're so happy you're here to worship with us today and to enjoy the presence of the Lord. Just got a few announcements to let you know what's going on in the life of our body. Excited about some of these events coming up. First off, ladies, next Saturday, we're uh, September 9th is the next Homemakers Workshop. It is on boosting your immunity naturally about using plants, herbs, oils, all the sorts of things. It's uh, next Saturday, September 9th from 9 a.m. to 12 over in the gym building in room one or two. I'm not sure which you'll set up, but uh, just to make you aware, um, they, we still do these once a month. The ladies have a wonderful time, different topics and subjects, so you can make preparations to enjoy that. Also, next Sunday, very important for those even that have been visiting with us, uh, begins a four-week series on our Foundations Membership Class. This is a part of the requirements to become a member here at Gateway, but there's no obligation um, if you attend to join, but it is a part of the steps in the process. It begins next Sunday, September 10th. It'll be four weeks before the worship service over in the gym building. I'm sorry, it's changed. Thank you. Just saw. Due to to the location with so many, we're going to be in the sanctuary here at 9 a.m. next Sunday for that class, 9 a.m. here in the sanctuary. Um, and we do ask just for, to prepare, uh, if you can uh, register on the website at gatewaybaptist.com. Under the News and Events tab, you'll see a place to register. Uh, I'm very excited for that time to come. And just get to know more about who we are, our DNA, different aspects of the church, worship, governance, all those sorts of things, the gospel. Just some wonderful things to just know who we are. And uh, that is a part of the process with the Discoverer Gateway Lunch um, that if you have not attended, we'll be having one of those in the next few weeks as well. So very excited about that starting again next Sunday. Also, ladies, October 6th through the 8th, there's a time for you to get together for a time of rest and renewal in Mentone, Alabama at a retreat. Uh, The details and registration are also on the website. So if you want to go there and get you signed up uh, just to enjoy a time of respite and fellowship with the ladies, that's available for you. And lastly, we don't have a slide for it, but we're very excited to announce a fun opportunity on Saturday, September 23rd at 6 p.m. We are going to have a church-wide square dance. So y'all, you get your hoe down on, bring your cowboy hat, your belt buckles, your jeans, your boots. If, the, if Blake Cobb was here, I can't wait to see how he's going to come dressed. So, church-wide square dance, very excited about it, in the gym, Saturday, September 23rd, great time of fellowship. We will have a professional caller who's going to be teaching us. It's for all ages, want to make that clear, uh, but child care we do have for six and under. We will have more details going out through email and things of that nature. Um, if you want to just do it for a date night, great. Get child care or somebody, watch the other kids. But exciting, fun times. Church Square Dance, September 23rd, 6 p.m. Mark it on your calendar, and we'll get some more information out as well. Very excited about that. All right, you ready to worship our wonderful Lord, our Savior, our King? Let's stand, prepare our hearts to worship him in song. So grateful to be together as the family of God. I've been reading through Jeremiah, and these few verses just stood out to me this week. I love hearing how God declares his goodness, his power, his glory. So this is Jeremiah 10, verses 6 through 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, 
For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of a skilled man. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Let's worship our everlasting king this morning. Sing this together. Praise him, all you creatures, great and small. Praise him, all you creatures, great and small. Praise him, summer, winter, spring, and fall. Halloween wind, rushing streams, rolling hills, and crashing seas. Lift your voice and worship your creator. Praise him, gleaming moon.
Sin 
Somebody 
thank you for that declaration, Lord, that we are awaiting your arrival, your faithfulness, God. You will return for us, for your bride. Lord, that's why our faith is steadfast. You're our rock. We stand on the truth of your word, the promises you have made. And Lord, I just never ceases to amaze me if we just sung, Lord. Lord, we're still prone to wander, <laughs> dealing with our mind-willed emotions and the battling of sin and but God, you're the great shepherd who comes after us. Sheep that are cast at times and goes beyond the boundaries of your, your flock and your herd and what you've established for us. But you come after us and you restore us and renew us. You put us on your shoulders and you carry us home. God, we thank you that you are so good and so faithful. We can trust you, Lord. We can lean on you. You are so faithful and good. Lord, we continue to thank you for these times that we get together as your family to delight in you and praise you, to worship you, just to come be in your presence, Lord, as your family, as your sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for these opportunities to come together and to intercede, to stand in the gap for people and for situations, for our churches, for missionaries globally, Lord, for things going on all over the world. As we just read this morning with our youth group, when you asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, are you guys all going to leave too? Are you going to go away with the others? And Peter so beautifully declared, Lord, where are we going to go? Who are we going to follow? There is no one else. Only you give eternal life. We know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. So God, that's our cry today. There's nowhere else to go. You are our sustenance. You are our satisfaction. You are our nourishment. You are the bread of life and the living water. Lord, we partake of you today. We thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you have given of yourself for us to experience daily your sweet bread and your precious water to sustain our lives. 
for eternity that we will be with you forever. And Lord, with that heart and mindset, as we come here to be encouraged, to be uh, exhorted and and, uh, edified and to be taught and equipped, Lord, I just pray for all of us within this, this room, our Gateway family, even those visiting God, we pray that you would stir in us and provide us opportunities even this week to be salt and light, to be your ambassadors, that you would give us divine appointments and opportunities to live our faith out, to show it, to teach it, to share it, to speak it out, the beauty of your gospel. Give us all an opportunity, Lord, in some form or fashion, within our families, our homes, our schools, our jobs, our social settings, that the light of Christ would exude from us. It would be clearly seen. And we thank you, God, we can represent you. We thank you that we can participate with you to advance the gospel in our spheres of influence. And Lord, we thank you for the ministries that you're doing out of this community of faith here. Lord, we thank you so much for hopes for Seth and Megan Rodebeck and leading out in this ministry to our public education system. Specifically, Lord, we just lift up those precious children at Capitol Heights Middle School where every Tuesday morning, Seth and Megan and other volunteers faithfully go each morning to bring the gospel, to share from your word, to show them the love and compassion of Jesus. God, we pray you continue to bless that time, that you would bring a spirit of conviction and enlightenment for these kids to understand and see and know who you are. Continue to give uh, Seth and others that are teaching guidance and wisdom as they share. Lord, we want to see a revival break out in that school. To see these young men and women and teachers come to saving faith to take the gospel back to their families. So we thank you for this ministry and those involved, Lord. And we just say your kingdom come and your will be done at that school. And Lord, we thank you for the partnership and the ministry that takes place in this room after we're done every Sunday morning, Lord, for Pastor Samuel and New Life in Christ Church, the Hispanic church that meets here. Been meeting here for over 10 years, God. We thank you for their ministry to the Hispanic community, their love for the people in their community, and just this precious church, God, that have been so faithful for so long. Continue to bless them, provide for them, protect them, give them opportunities wherever they are in their jobs and schools to bring those into the kingdom, God, to use them faithfully. Give Pastor Samuel and the leadership wisdom and discernment and vision and strategy and all that they need to reach their community with the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. And this morning, God, we lift up the Mescal's Children's Center in Kenya. We thank you for the ministry they're doing to reach these precious children with the gospel and Christian education at that center. We pray, God, for continued provision financially, physically, emotionally. Protect them in that area, God. And we just, again, want to see many of these young people come to Saving Faith, give them all that they need, all the provision they need. We thank you for Emily Griffin and her Uh, ministry uh, leading out in that way here in this community to stand in the gap for them and be a representative of that children's center. Continue to guide and direct their steps. And Lord, we thank you for your provision. Lord, we thank you for the offering that's been given today and online. We thank you, God, that you are so good, so faithful. You have blessed us with so much. And you just ask for a small, small portion of that back in return to facilitate your kingdom work and what you're doing here. We thank you for what you provided. Continue to bless it. Give us wisdom on how to be good stewards of what you have given us. And lastly, Lord, we thank you so much for our pastor. Thank you for Grady and his shepherding of us, his love for us to dig in your word each week, to shepherd us faithfully in your word. Just give him wisdom and discernment and strength this morning as he hears from you, as he leads out, that may he will be your voice 
your mouthpiece today. Bless him as he comes to give your word. God, we praise you. We love you. We thank you for this opportunity. May we never take it for granted that we can meet and gather as we do here and the freedoms that we have to worship and declare that Jesus is Lord. And we praise you and thank you in your precious name. Amen. to kids worship. Get Mr. Rick with you this morning. First to fourth graders, you can head to kids worship with Mr. Rick. So if you'll find Genesis chapter one in your copy of God's word, the first page of the text of your Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in a 10 month journey working verse by verse through Genesis one through 11, the foundations of God's word and the foundations of what we believe. We're in the very first words of Scripture, the very beginning of God's revelation of who He is. Now, two weeks ago, we started and we saw the very beginning of Scripture. And if you remember from two weeks ago, the beginning of Scripture is the truth that God has no beginning. As we sang about this morning, that God is eternal. He is always there, no beginning and no end. And though He is eternal, what we saw last week, the world we're living in is not. The very first verb of the Bible is the Hebrew word bara, God created everything from nothing. Today we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And this is God's revelation of how he made everything. So I was reading this week, one of the authors said it so well. He said, this is the beginning of the story God has been writing for all of history. That's what we get to study this morning, friends. The beginning of the story that God has been writing for all of history. Now, to see how God made everything from nothing, we're going to do something a bit unusual, at least unusual for us. We're going to look at 23 verses this morning. Yes, you heard me right. We're going to hit 23 verses in God's Word this morning. Now, when I told my kids this while we were driving this week, one of them grabbed my phone and got the calculator out. And I was afraid I knew what he was doing. But he looked at the average length of one of my sermons, which normally is one verse, <laughs> multiplied at times 23 verses, said, Dad, your sermon's going to be 13 and a half hours at your normal rate of teaching. No, friends, we're not going to be here for 13 and a half hours, but yes, we are going to look at 23 verses this morning. Now, why 23 verses? Because they tell one historical story for us. It's a beautiful picture that God has revealed to us of what he did and how he did it and even the why of why he did it this way. It is a beautiful story, and this is one of those stories where I don't want us to get so lost in the details that we miss the beauty of what God has revealed and what we learn about him here. And no, it's not going to take 13 hours to get through because, friends, there's a lot of symmetry here and there's a lot of repetition here. And as you'll see, repeated phrases and those phrases that occur over and over and over will show us the same truth each time you see them. And they will connect beautifully to show us the main truth of this part of God's word. So we read just from Genesis 1 this morning. I want you to look for what are those phrases you see again and again? What are those repeated phrases? And then what do we learn about God? as we see those same phrases over and over. So as we look at Genesis 1, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. You will get a longer stretch break this morning because we are reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 25 this morning. I'm reading out the English Standard Version if you'd like to follow along. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening 
And there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God saw there would be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word, and we thank you for your word being your revelation to us of who you are and who we are and what you did and your plans. Or we know that unless you revealed yourself to us, we would not know you. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. I pray today, as we look at this, for many of us, very familiar account of creation, that God, you would take us beyond just pictures in kids' story Bibles to the wonders of what you have revealed, the wonders of who you are as we see in what you've done. So give us fresh eyes as we think about you and your glory and your power and your greatness today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, obviously, that's a lot of reading we just did. So to help guide us through talking about it, I want to look at four questions this morning to study this text. Four questions. Now, we're going to spend the most of the time on questions one and two. So if you're looking at your watch and you think we're only through two questions, don't panic. The last two are quick to help us think about the application of this to where we are. So we're going to focus on the first two. Question one is quite simply, what did God make? What did God make? Now, to answer that question, go back to verse two, what we looked at last week. Remember how the verse began? The earth was without form and void. Now, we honed in on this phrase last week because in Hebrew, this word, remember, without form is the Hebrew word tohu, and the word void is bohu. It's a Hebrew phrase, tohu wa bohu, and it's a picture of things being uninhabitable. Now, what we just read that follows this is a beautiful picture because in days one, two, and three of creation, God addresses the tohu, the without form. And so days one, two, and three, you'll see God forming from those raw materials he made in verse two at the beginning of the day when you see God forming everything into being. And then in days four, five, and six of creation, God addresses the bohu, the void. He starts to fill those spaces he's made with Things. So there's a beautiful symmetry to this. So let's look at each day just very briefly. Day one, what did God make? God made lights. Look back at verses three and four. And God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So the very first step in God taking all those raw materials he made on day one and making it habitable, livable for people, is God makes light. Now, for some who read Genesis 1, this is a point of frustration for them. Because they go, but wait, the sun doesn't appear till day four. How can this be true? There's light and there's no sun. Now, for us, that'd be a problem, but not for God, because he doesn't need anything, friends. I want you to notice something here. The Bible begins with light, but no sun. But look at how the Bible also ends. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. Notice the parallel here. And night will be no more. This is what we get to look forward to as God's people. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the very first chapter of the Bible begins with light, but no physical sun. And the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, parallels that, where there's light, but no sun. Because God is God, he can create light without the physical sun to be in the sky to do that. It's a reminder of his independence that God needs absolutely nothing. So God makes light. But this is the point in creation that God also makes time as we know it. Look at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So here at the very beginning of creation, you have the ordering of time as we know it. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been having our brains hurt a little bit on the attributes of God. We've been talking about that there was a time, that's not the right word, but there was a time where there was no time. That God is timeless. God is not bound by time like we are. And so time is a part of creation that he made. And this is where time comes into existence. He makes the light day and the darkness. He makes night. Even though there's no sun, even though there's no solar system yet, God is already forming those patterns of day and of night, of the 24-hour day that we are so familiar with. And we see that in the phrase that follows there in verse 5. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, this is frustrating for some because they go, but wait, I thought morning comes first, then evening. Well, yes, if you live in the United States. But for the Jewish people, they ordered the 24-hour days starting in the evening. That's why the Sabbath would start in the evening and go till the next evening. This was a Jewish way of describing a day. So from day one, God not only makes light without a sun, but God also creates time as we know it. So that's the beginning of day one. As one of the authors I read this week said this, Light shone on the glistening deep of the unworked, unordered earth. Then God speaks again. And that's what we have here at the end of day one, is we have light glistening on all those raw materials that God is making everything from, that he had just spoken to being in verse two. So day two, what does God make? God makes the sky. So in day two, God makes the sky, verses six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, before we jump into that one, I want you to notice something here. As you think about what we saw last week, those hundreds of trillions of galaxies and the vastness of space, notice how earth-centered the creation account becomes here. We see God making light, but then all of a sudden now the focus of the story is like the camera zooms in on our little planet Earth here. Now, why? Because God is showing us from the start that this little tiny planet is the focus of his plans. The focus of his plans to reveal his character. The focus of his plans to redeem a people for himself. And so the rest of the creation account zooms in on our little planet here and shows everything from the perspective of our little Earth here. So what did God create on the earth on day two? We just saw it in verse six. He created this expanse. This expanse means separation. It's a horizontal area separating two things. 
He separated the waters above from the waters below. In other words, he creates the sky and then what will later be named the seas. And he leaves this gap in the middle, this area which will become the habitable part of the earth in which we now live. So by day two, you have light, you have time, you have the sky, you have the waters below, and you have this empty space that's going to become where we now reside. One of the authors I read said it like this. During the first two days of creation, God has brought increasing form and order to creation. The earth, warmed by light, was now robed in blue and dappled with clouds floating over a sparkling sea. The picture is increasingly inviting. And that's where we land by the end of day two, this inviting picture of the blue sky of the atmosphere and the waters below and this empty space to where we now live. So what about day three? Again, God is forming out of nothing things. What does he make on day three? Day three, God makes the land. God makes the plants, the vegetation. Now, day three is a massively significant day. And we know that because God speaks twice here, not just once. And in doing so, the earth now becomes productive on day three. It becomes able to sustain life on day three. So this is a huge turning point in creation. Look at verses 9 and 10. And God saw the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was Good. This is the final ordering of Tohu. This is the end of things being without form. By the end of this day now, there's form to everything. There's dry land. There's the continents of the earth. There's a separation of the land and the water. But God does not stop there in this final day of forming. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. This is the climax of that first three days of creation because the earth is now Productive. There's living things on the surface of the world, living things that will continue on. And now, friends, don't miss something here. And all that God is doing, God is forming the world to be able to sustain human life. This is not haphazard. This is not arbitrary. God is developing a world that will be suitable for life made in his image. And we see that here with the creation of plants. Jump ahead to Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. And look at what God says about the plants he's just made. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and fruit. You shall have them for food. Then in verse 30, he goes on to say, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. So God makes the plants not as some arbitrary thing, but because he's working towards this creation of human life in his image, he's making a world that's perfectly fitted to sustain life made in his image. So now at the end of day three, things are shaped, things have form, the tohu, the formlessness has now been addressed. So now it's time for God to focus on the bohu, the voidness of those spaces he's just made and fill them with things. And there's a beautiful parallelism here. So on day one... God made light and darkness and time. Now on day four, God's going to make the sun and the moon and the stars, those things that we see the light from. He's going to fill the sky. He's going to fill the day and the night with the sun, the moon, and the stars. So look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now what are these lights he made? Verse 16. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, wait a minute here. Why does God not just say he made the sun and the moon? Why is he talking about these greater lights and lesser lights? Now, again, think back to the first week of Genesis. 
This is written by Moses. This is God's revelation written, written down by Moses in the time of Israel wandering after they've come out of the Egyptian slavery. So they've just come out of Egypt. Now, if you've lived in Egypt there as God's people, the Egyptians worship many false gods, particularly the sun god and the moon god. And so why does God not just say, hey, I made the sun and the moon? Because he's being crystal clear to his people. These lights in the sky are not God's to be worshipped. That he made them, they're not God's themselves. So he intentionally changes his terminology because, don't miss this, God wants to be known. And God is crystal clear in his revelation. He's making sure his people do not confuse the sun and the moon or things to be worshipped. He's saying, no, these are not there to be worshipped. I made them. And quite the opposite is true. The sun and the moon are not there for people to serve the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon are there to serve human life, to sustain human life. Notice how the lights in the sky were made with humanity in view. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night so they help us know time and where we are. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So why did God put the sun and the moon in the sky? So that we would know what time it is. So we would know what time of year it is. And he says it would be for signs to help people navigate. Remember, up until recently, there was no, hey, Google, get me to Nashville, Tennessee today. They would have that. So how did they navigate? You looked at the sun in the sky and knew which way was north and south and west and east at night. You looked at the stars and knew by fixed point of stars where to go. God intentionally created a world with the sun and moon and stars to serve his people by giving them time, by giving them seasons, by giving them navigation to help them navigate his world. And friends, don't miss how easy this was for God. Caden, go back to verse 16 for us. I, don't, I didn't put it on your list, but verse 16, go back there. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Remember last week? There's hundreds, thousands, trillions of galaxies, and it simply gets like three English words here, and the stars. The astronomers estimate that there are 200 billion trillion stars, okay? 200 billion trillion gets three words in the Bible here. As best I can count, that's two followed by 23 zeros, if I remember my math correctly on that. So two, right, 23 zeros, that part of creation gets three words here. Oh, yeah, and God made the stars. God formed 200 billion trillion stars into place for the benefit of humanity to have signs, to have seasons, and to be able to navigate the world God has made. So with everything formed, with tohu gone, God is now addressing the bohu, the void, and he first fills the sky, the night and the day, with light, with sun, moon, and stars. But he does more. On day five of creation, he's now, and again, there's parallel here. So on day two of creation, God made that expanse, the waters above and the waters below. So on day five of creation, he fills those spaces. He makes the creatures in the sky and the creatures in the sea. If you ever wonder why does he separate that as a different day from the land animals, this is all in perfect parallel. Day one, light and dark. Day four, he fills the sky with sun, moon, and stars. Day two, he makes the sky and the ocean. Day five, he fills the sky with birds and the ocean. He fills with living creatures. Look at verses 20 and 21 of God's word here. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now friends, I love this day. We could spend a whole sermon on the absolute creativity of God here. Here he makes the things that live in the ocean, 
the whales, all those types of sharks, the goofy ones with those big hammerhead things that stick out on the side. He makes the monsters of the deep. He makes alligators and crocodiles. He makes those creatures that live in total darkness by the thermal vents that we can't even get down to apart from submersibles that we can't even get into because the pressure is too deep and they live in these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. He makes creatures with all those creepy tentacles, all those little suckers on them that go out. He makes the jellyfish and all these weird things you see in the ocean. He does the same for the sky. He makes the eagles and the ravens and the ducks and the cardinals and the woodpecker. He makes the majesty of the bald eagles that soar. He makes the stunning speed of those little wings of the hummingbirds that we can't even see because they move so fast and he makes so much more. He fills the sky. He fills the waters with living creatures. And notice something that unique that happens here. It's the first time this happens in the Bible. Look at verse 22 here. And God blessed them. The very first blessing in all of Scripture is here. It's a blessing for living things. And the blessing here is the ability for living things to be able to procreate, to have a God-given ability to fill the earth with more of their own type. So there we are at the end of day five. Light and dark and time has been made, and that space has been filled with the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sky and the ocean have been made, and that space is now filled. The void is filled with the birds and the water creatures. And then remember, day three of creation, he made the land and the vegetation. So now we come to day six of creation. That's the last thing left to be filled, and that is the land. And so we come to day six, and God makes on day six the land animals. Look at verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. Now notice something here. It doesn't just say God made land animals. There's three types of land animals that are mentioned here, and they're interesting because they're all different. It says, first of all, there's the beast of the earth. Now, in the Hebrew, this would communicate the beasts that are wild, the animals that are wild. These are going to be the strong, big, wild animals, the lions, the tigers, the bison that live in Yellowstone, the grizzly bears that I am glad I avoided backpacking last time, the black bears of the Appalachians that I don't want to meet when I go backpacking next time. These are the the wild animals. And what's so fascinating is before the fall comes and corrupts things, before the fall brings disharmony in creation, you already have a type of animals that are made by God different, that are powerful, that are made to be undomesticated, that are made to be wild and to roam the earth. You have the beast of the earth. But God also made on this day the creeping things. Now, for many of us, when we get to heaven, we probably want to ask God some questions about this category. Particularly, why, God? Why did you make those creepy little worms in the ground that when you cut them in half, they become two living worms? Or you cut them down the middle and they form two heads and all those creepy things in the dirt. This would include those and the caterpillars. And yes, my least favorite of all creation, the snakes. That all falls under this particular category, anything on the ground. But there's one more category here I don't want you to miss, and that category is the livestock. Now, in the Hebrew, this meant domesticated animals. And this is significant here, because remember, I've been trying to help us see That all of creation is about God making a world habitable, that's livable for God's people. Creation is not haphazard. God is forming a world that can support life made in his image. And so from the beginning, God makes domesticated animals, animals that were made to be in the service of people. It's not because we are so smart that we figured out how to tame certain animals. God made a certain group of animals to be tamed by people to serve people. That's why you don't see lions pulling a plow in the old days pictures, right? Because they were to be the wild animals, but God made domesticated animals to serve the needs of people. This is a consistent theme of creation that we often miss. Creation is purposeful of God making a world that is livable for his people. That includes certain animals that are used to serve people. But what else on day six? You may be thinking we've missed one of the most important parts of day six, and that's the creation of people. 
And we're coming to that one next week, because that deserves a whole message. But for now, as we look at where we are in the middle of day six, notice the common theme that we see throughout all of this. As God makes a world that's livable for people made in his image, what does he declare when he sees every step of the way? Go back to verse four, and notice what God says at the very beginning of verse four. And God saw that the light was what? God saw the light was good. Verse 10, when he looks at what he made in verse 10, let's jump onto that one, Caden. Do you have it up there? God called the dry land earth and the waters that are gathered together called seas. And God saw it was what? It was good. Okay, verse 12 there. We've got to jump on down to verse 12. We're going to see the same thing at the end of all this. God brings the vegetation. The very last thing, God saw it was what? Yeah, there you go. Verse 8. See this easy one right here. Verse 18. He makes the day and the night. He separates the light. And when he looks at all this, what does he see in verse 18? It was what? It was good. Yeah, verse 21, we'll see the same thing. He creates the sea creatures. He sees the things on the ground. And God saw it was good. Yeah, there we go. We go on down to verse 25 as well. God makes the beast of the earth. And very end of verse 25, God saw it was good. And then we come to what we'll get to in a few weeks. This is still several weeks off. We're slowing down after today. Don't worry. God, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Seven times throughout this account, God looks at what he's done and goes, it's good, it's good, it's good. And finally says, it is very good. Now, this word good in the Hebrew can mean two things. One, it can mean beautiful. You look at something and go, this is absolutely beautiful what has just been made. It can also mean this will accomplish what I intended it to accomplish. So it can mean beautiful. It can mean able to accomplish this purpose. I think both are in view. I think God in his infinite creativity makes the jellyfish and makes the sharks and makes the land animals and makes the snakes and makes the trees and makes the sun and the moon and stars and goes, this is gorgeous because it came out of his perfect personality. He makes it as beautiful. But remember, he's making it for a purpose to sustain human life on the earth. And he looks and he goes, yes, this will sustain human life. Yes, this land will grow food that people can eat. And yes, this land will have animals that people can have dominion over. Yes, this will do what I want it to do to, to put people in my image here. So God says it's beautiful and God says it will accomplish his purpose. So that's question one. What did God make? That's the long question for us. He made a world perfectly inhabitable for his people. God made a world that would perfectly fulfill all of his purposes. At least our second question, how did God make it? How did God do all of this? Now, to answer this question, we need to think back to our very first week of Genesis. Remember I told you when you interpret Scripture, it's important to know the genre of Scripture of what you're reading. If it's poetry or a parable or different types of writings. When you look at Genesis, this is called historical narrative. Genesis is not poetry. It's not imagery. It's not figurative language. In the language in which the Hebrew people would have read this, this is how you recorded historical events. The Hebrew people would not read Genesis 1 and go, wow, that's a beautiful poem. They'd read this and go, this is written the same way that that God recorded our history as well. This is God's revelation of how he did it. And how did God say he made everything? We're told in verse 3, and God said. God's revelation, he just spoke things into being. We said he's all sufficient. God needs nothing God speaks and things come into being. Again, there's repetition here. God wants to make sure we understand this. So we're told in verse 6, and God said. We're told in verse number 9, and God said. We're told in verse number 11, and God said. We're told in verse number 14, and God said. We're told in verse number 20 as well, and God said. We're told in verse number 24, and God said. And then what we'll get to in the creation of mankind next week, and God said. And all of these things, we see this repeated phrase that God simply used his voice to make everything out of nothing. And it just happened. Now, friends, again, the world thinks we're crazy for believing that. This is not imagery. This is God's revelation. He speaks and things come into being. 
I love how Francis Schaeffer described it. Francis Schaeffer said, the mentality of the whole scripture is that creation is, is as historically real as the history of the Jews or the history of our present moment of time. But the Old and the New Testaments deliberately root themselves back into the early chapters of Genesis, insisting that they are the record of historical events. And what's God's history and self-revelation? He said, I made the world by speaking. Now, friends, whatever you believe about how the earth came into being, it's going to take faith because you weren't there and I wasn't there. None of us were there. So we have to believe in faith how things came about. And I love how the author of Hebrews describes that reality for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You have faith in something. Whatever you believe about where the world came from, you are putting faith in something. And Hebrews 11 calls us to have faith that God spoke this into being as he revealed himself to be. Now, in affirming the world was made simply by God speaking and not needing anything else, there's something powerful in this text I do not want you to miss this morning. This just blew my mind the more I studied on it this week. What is the most repeated phrase in all of Genesis 1? What is the most repeated phrase that you heard over and over as we went through Genesis 1? It's not God said. It's not God saw. It is not even there was evening and there was morning. The phrase that is most often repeated in Genesis 1, which means it's one of the most significant things God wants us to know from this text, is a phrase that clarifies how things did and did not come into existence. Look at verse 11 here in Genesis 1. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, here it is, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. And which is their seed? And here's the phrase, each according to its kind. The most repeated phrase in all of Genesis 1 is not God said. The most repeated phrase in all of Genesis 1 is according to its kind. So you see it there in verse 11. Verse 12, the earth brought vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. You jump down to verse 21, you'll see it there again. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You go down to verse 24. God saw the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And unless we miss it, verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Ten times this exact phrase appears over and over and over according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. And if you want to add to that, he then stresses the idea of seeds reproducing according to their kind. Go back to verse 11. God said, let there sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed. Go down to verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed. So 14 times in Genesis 1, we are told that living things reproduce according to their kind. Seeds produce according to their kinds. Double the amount of times we are told God spoke, we are told according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. This means that everything was made uniquely by God and everything only reproduced its own kind, not other kinds. God who is outside of time knows the challenges to what his word says about creation. And he spoke very clearly in ways the Hebrew people would clearly understand that the, their kinds will not produce other kinds, that things according to their kinds only produce the same kind of things. And so when he tells us the formation of plants in day three, he's very clear that plants will only yield their own kind. When he makes the birds in day five, he makes it very clear that only birds will, will produce their own kind. When he talks about the water animals in day five, only those animals will produce their own kind. 
When he talks about in day six, land animals, only their type will produce their own kind. And we get later to humanity, only humans produce other humans. God is being very clear over and over that living things can only reproduce their own kind, that living things cannot become other kinds of living things. God speaks and he makes things uniquely what they are and they will remain that unique thing the rest of history. One of the commentators I read said this, nature itself here is seen to have definite limits fixed which appear as constant laws and as insurmountable barriers. God has made these natural laws to where living things only produce according to their kind. Now that's not what you were taught in school. That's not what is the popular view today. But for the sake of clarity from the rest of Scripture, I want you to realize something. If we do not believe God spoke these into existence, if we do not believe that God let things only produce according to their kinds, the alternative view is a view that requires there to be death in the process, where some things die off and some things are selected against. But friends, that does not square with the Bible's teaching about death. In all of Genesis 1, there's no death here. There's no way for there to be death here. Another phrase you see over and over in Genesis 1, go back to verse 4. And God saw the light was good. And each day we see that things are good. Friends, when you look at Scripture, death is not good. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 actually tells us quite the opposite about death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why in the new heavens and the new earth, death will be no more. Which tried to mean there'll be no chicken sandwiches anymore in heaven, but that's a whole other story on that. But death will be no more. Death is an enemy, death is not good. And so when God looks at the six days of creation and goes, this is good, he's not looking at things dying off to become better types of other things and going, oh, this is good. Death is not good in God's plan. Where did death come from, friend? This to me is one of the most important verses to understand Genesis 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This to me helps make sense of God's plan in Genesis 1. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and notice this, and death, the verb carries here, death came through sin, so death spread to all men. Because all sin. That means in Romans 5's teaching for us, death only entered the world when sin entered the world. There is no sin entering the world in Genesis 1 yet because man is not here yet to mess things up. So in the first six days of creation, there is no sin. Therefore, according to the testimony of Romans 5, there can be no death. That means there's no selection of species dying off so other species can come better. Rather, God spoke everything into being in the six days of creation and put boundaries over each species so they reproduce their own type. What we see in Genesis 1 is a picture of God speaking with order, with intentionality, and with no death in the process so that the world and everything we know came about. One of the theologians I like, his name is Herman Bavink, says this. He says, when the Bible speaks about the origin of heaven and earth, it deserves faith and trust. And for that reason, Christian theology, with but few exceptions, has held fast to the literal historical view of the account of creation. And there's a fun story that's told, it's repeated in many places, about Sir Isaac Newton, the 17th century mathematician and philosopher. And the story goes, and I've looked it up multiple places. I have no way to verify it, but it's repeated by many, many, many people. And it's a, and it's a timely one if you think about this text. Sir Isaac Newton had a mechanical replica of our solar system made in miniature. At its center was a large golden ball representing the sun, and revolving around it were smaller spheres attached to the ends of the rods of varying lengths. These represented Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the planets. They were all geared together by cogs and belts to make them move around the sun in perfect harmony. So get the picture of this, a working replica of the solar system. You may have seen these with the sun in the middle and all the planets moving around with perfect gear so they keep their right orbits. The story goes, and many people have recorded this, that one day as Sir Isaac Newton was studying his model, an unbeliever stopped by for a visit. 
marveling at this device and watching the scientists and watching as the scientists made the heavenly bodies move in their orbits, the man exclaimed, My, Mr. Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac Newton replied, Nobody. Nobody, his friend asked. Yeah, that's right. I said, Nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together, and wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits and with perfect timing. His friend undoubtedly got the point. The existence of Newton's machine presupposed the maker, and even more so the earth, and its perfectly ordered solar system. Friends, when I look at the six days of creation, this is not a picture of chance things happening. This is a picture of a sovereign God who is perfectly ordering everything to make a world that will glorify him and will sustain human life. So he creates light. He doesn't need a sun to do that. He can then make waters above to give us an atmosphere to protect us. He makes the waters below to sustain life. He forms land and puts vegetation on it, all building to be able to put animals in those different spheres. He made it ultimately to put humans on it, as we will see, to have dominion over this earth and to be his image bearers on this earth. He made a very unique plan. If you look at the rest of our solar system, nothing can sustain life, but he made an earth that could for his perfect purposes. We are not a result of chance. We are the image bearers of a sovereign God who made a perfect world that he filled with us. So that's what God did. That is how God did it. He spoke. Now, what do we learn about God here? What do we see about God in Genesis 1? Now, there's a lot we could say. We could point out his sovereignty. We could spend a whole sermon talking about his sovereignty here, how he named each thing, and naming everything shows us that he is sovereign over it. We could spend a whole sermon here talking about the perfection of his plans, how perfectly ordered everything is, and how he's making a world that can sustain our life. We could spend a whole sermon talking about his power, his omnipotence here, and how when he speaks, things happen. We could point out how perfectly ordered and peaceful things are as he addresses the Tohu of days 1 to 3 and the Bohu of 4, 5, and 6. But there's one I want you to hone in on this morning and not to miss. What does God want us to know here about himself? As God delights in revealing himself to us. God is a revealing God, and he delights in revealing himself to us. Everything that we have read today, God put there so we would know him. God didn't have to tell us any of this, friends. The Bible could begin, in the beginning, God and people are there to show his image. Like he could have skipped all this part of Genesis 1, but he did not. Why? Because he put it here so we would see all of his attributes. We see his beauty. We see his power. We see how purposeful he is. And we see that this earth is here to accomplish his purposes for us, his people. I love how the psalmist declares it in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. In Psalm 19, to the choir master, Psalm of David, the heavens declare... They shout out, they scream, they're constantly yelling at us, the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Because there's not a time we can't look outside and go, wow, there must be a God. In verse 3, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God made all of this to point to him. God made everything so that when we go outside and we see this, we go, wow, there is a God. It's there to remind us he is God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, we're told the same thing. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Do you see why creation is there? It's to show us that God is there. And I'm concerned in the world we live in, we have lost the ability to go out and look up and see these things. We're so mesmerized by our screens and our entertainment and our media. We've lost the wonder of going out and looking at the night sky going, wow, God, you're sovereign. We've missed the wonder of looking out in the woods and going, wow, God, you spoke this into being. We've missed the wonder of sitting in the ocean, listening to the waves without something in our ears just to go, God, you are big and you are real. God put this here and calls us to look up our eyes and see who made these things so we would remember him. This is what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 also, Romans 1, 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has made this beautiful world, not for us to scratch our heads going, I wonder where we came from. But so when we see it, we go, wow, there is a creator and I want to know him. And all these reminders of creation are there to drive us back to his word where we learn who he is. Psalm 119 105 is what he's pointing us back to. The, your word, God, your scripture is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I need almost a whole sermon for this, but I've been thinking on this this week to pull all that together. The light of the world. Isn't that one of Jesus' terms for himself? The light of the world, Jesus spoke light into existence. He spoke everything into existence to show us that God is real, to point us to run to the written word, which would be the light to our path and to our feet. So the light of the world speaks of light into being to drive us to the light of Scripture so that we would know God. God is a revealing God. And the beauty of Genesis 1 is it shows us over and over God desires to be known and wants us to know him. So let's bring all that together. Here's the main idea of this text, and there'll be one more question for us after this main idea. Here's Genesis 1 of what I wanted you to see. God made for his people a perfectly suited world that would continually remind them that he alone is God. God made this world, as you hope you've seen over and over through the six days of creation, a world that's perfectly fitted to be inhabitable, to be livable, that would accomplish his purpose and be the place to which he himself would come and take on human flesh to redeem a people for himself. He made a world full of reminders that he is God, from the power of the hurricanes you watch come through to the grandness of the mountains, to the peace of the ocean waves, to the sunsets in the evening, to the constellations in the night sky. It is all there to declare, to scream at us, there is a God. And he made it all with such intentionality to point us that we can know him and to be known by him. God made for his people a perfectly suited, a perfectly inhabitable, perfectly living world that would continually remind them that he alone is God. That leads to our very quick last question in light of this truth. How do we respond to this revelation? It is everywhere, friends. When you walk outside to drive home today, you'll see clouds in the sky. I'm looking out over them in the back window. You see the trees. You see the, the tree leaves rustling in the wind that you can't see the wind. You hear the sounds of the wind that you cannot see it. You'll hear running water. You will see all around you today evidences of the handiwork of God. How do we respond to God's creation and his revelation. There's only two responses. For some, the beauty of creation leads us to run to his word because we want to know him. We want to know the God who made all this. We looked at it earlier, but Psalm 19, verse 1. Go back to Psalm 19 for just a minute. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Now, what's interesting is those next five verses, 1 to 6, are all about how the beautiful the heavens are, the creation is. But then it immediately goes to verse 7. This is not like a random jump. In verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's not like the psalmist forgot he was writing about creation and switched to the word all of a sudden. He's showing us what creation is supposed to do. The more we think about the greatness of God and what he made, the more it makes us want to run to God's word so we know who he is. So the simple us become more wise as we know God. So for some, the beauty of creation reminds us there is a God and it leads us to run to God's word so that we know him. But for many, though, the reality of creation does something very different. At least it's suppressing the truth. We looked at Romans 1 earlier, but Romans 1 shows us the other response to God's revelation and creation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And what do they suppress? Verse 19, he goes on. For what can be known about God is plain to them. What is this? This is what we call common revelation, common grace and creation. It's plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How has God shown them that he is there? Verse 20 tells us. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly, not solely, but clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But they don't look at creation and go, there's a God, I want to know him and run to the word to find out. What do they do instead? Verses 21 and 22 give us a tragic picture. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And here's the epitome of when we suppress God's revelation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So friends, my question for you this morning in light of all this is quite simply, how are you responding to God's creation? When you see the hurricanes, when you see the mountains, when you hear the ocean waves, when you see the pictures of the creatures and you see jellyfish in the ocean, when you see the snakes slithering along, when you hear the owl hooting at night, when you see the hummingbird sitting out on your bird feeder, when you see that, how do you respond? Do you suppress that and go, no, I'm going to live my own way? Or does that lead you to go, man, God, you're amazing. I want to know you. And you run to his word to know the God who is revealing himself to you. Friends, what effect is God's creation having on you? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. And we're thankful for your grace that you've revealed yourself to us in it. And Lord, I pray even as we think about the creation account, even this week as we see so many reminders from the night sky to the sun to the clouds to the trees to the animals, we see the beauty of your creation that you will remind us that you alone are God. And Lord, would you give us much grace to not suppress your truth? Or do you know our heart tendencies to want to be our own gods? You know our heart tendencies to want to go our own ways and to live with no accountability, just doing what we want to do. But Lord, you have given us billions of reminders every day and all this around us that you are God and you are near and you desire to be known by us. So would you give us hearts this week that respond to what we see with a heart longing to know you more. May your creation this week lead us through the work of your Holy Spirit in us to want to go to your word more to better understand you as you've revealed yourself to be. We ask you to do it, Lord. We need you to do that in our life. Would you do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning about the worthiness of God?
as we see the beauty of it all, that we will be reminded of how worthy you are and we will turn to you in praise. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.